Hello and welcome to Ideas Matter, the podcast that takes the important issues of our times and explores the ideas and intellectual trends that have shaped where we are today. You're about to listen to the lecture, The Emergence of the Culture Wars, the second in our series Culture Wars Then and Now. The lectures were recorded at the Academy Summer School, and each talk explores some of the intellectual, cultural, social and political trends that combine to shape the culture wars. Today, we've all become increasingly familiar with terms such as white privilege, TERFs, unconscious bias or microaggressions. But what should we understand by the culture wars? And what trends explain their emergence? How can we distinguish today's culture wars from those that have taken place earlier in history? And why have they come to assume such a dominant position in society? To look at these issues, we have Professor Frank Ferreira, sociologist at the University of Kent and the author of many books, including How Fear Works, Culture of Fear in the 21st Century, and Populism and the European Culture Wars. This morning, I don't want to talk about the future as much as the political cultural context uh, within which the present moment has arisen. And I want to dig a little bit deep, so I'm, I'll be going through a lot of historical material uh, in the, in, in, to build up the argument about what is the driving force of the culture wars. And the reason why this is a very difficult discussion for me is because uh, whenever you talk about the culture war, there's always an people often say, what culture war? There really isn't a culture war. And you'll find that most of the books written about the culture war in America in the 1970s, 1980s, they always argue that it's exaggerated. You know, on, on balance, most Americans agree with each other on fundamentals. And it's only a few nutters on the margins who insist that there's a, a polarized cultural environment being created. And, I, and what's very interesting is that the discussion around the, the war of cultures, the conflicts, is always very, very implicit. So for example, when conservatives attack the other side and denounce political correctness, they will then say, what is political correctness? It doesn't really exist. There is no such thing. I remember until very recently, if you talked about identity politics, they would say, what identity politics? This is a, an invention of some people to undermine us. And it's only very recently that people who believe in identity politics actually acknowledge that that's what they're into and they celebrate it. So it's a very kind of recent development. And the most frustrating thing about the discussion on the culture war is that what you're up against is rarely explicit and never comes across as a system of ideas. In many ways, it is a silent culture war where in, uh, where the ideology uh, that's driving it often has a, an implicit form. It's, it's not something that uh, comes across as an ideology or a system of ideas. It, it's just something that is uh, tacitly engaged with, something that people take for granted. And it, it, it almost has this kind of secret-like character to it. And what's important about the culture war is if you look at when it began in the, the current one, it used to be about issues like the environment. It used to be about the family. It used to be about abortion. It used to be all these old school ideals. You know, if you look at the 70s, the very first moment when it begins to emerge, uh, it was 
quite comprehensible. You know, the conservatives were for family values. The opposite side didn't like the family very much or argued that there are million and a half types of families. There's no point talking about a nuclear family. Who would have imagined 20 years ago or 10 years ago that in the 21st century, this present moment, the big debates about culture in, in the culture wars would be about white supremacy. I mean, where did white supremacy come from? And how did everything that white people do become an act of supremacy? You know, who made that up? And who would have imagined 10 years ago or 15 years ago that we would have massive debates, fantastic debates, about what, what is a man and what is a woman? Right? That it's so passe and it's so arbitrary to insist on these two things, you know, when, when in the world we live in, actually, it's so fluid, it's so fluid that these distinctions are, if, if anything, are kind of oppressive and, 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 and discriminatory. I mean, who would have imagined 15, 20 years ago that, in fact, everything becomes fluid? That people talk about the stupidity of binary thinking, where, you know, where you get to the point where any form of binary, right and wrong, good and bad, men and women, animals or humans, private and public, all those things are, are really an invention, uh, a meaningless invention that has some, some kind of oppressive character to it. So we're seeing what we're seeing here is, is a very interesting development. And one of the things that has occurred that I've never seen explained properly is how did it come about that behind the scenes, year in and year out, what used to be in the 1960s, the counterculture gradually mutates into a hegemonic culture. But it's no longer the same culture because at least the counterculture in the 60s had some good bits in it. Whereas what becomes the hegemonic force in institutions, education, in private businesses, in corporations, who would have imagined that those values and those attitudes would then come to prevail? And at the same time, the attitudes and the values that used to try to resist the counterculture have more or less disintegrated. And that's fantastic when you think about it, that there is no institution within Western societies that even makes the slightest pretense of standing up for those views. And the Conservative Party you know, is unrecognizable. It's got nothing in common with the Conservative Party of the 1950s. The churches you know, sort of, you know, are now made up of, of guitar singing <laughs> priests who, uh, who basically are so proud and boast about the fact that they're Catholic, but they would never, never make the slightest attempt to learn Latin. It's such a, you know, such an irrelevant thing. All these institutions, even the most conservative of conservative institutions, have kind of rolled over and have adapted and, have, and, and to some extent have given way to something that has no name. I mean, it's got no explicit name to it. It's not like you know, anarchism or socialism or communism or anything like that. It's got no clear name to it. In fact, the people who are supporting these changes swear, and they probably you know, are genuine, that they don't really understand why they're seen as, a, as members of a particular uh, cultural group with particular uh, political and cultural ambitions. I also think it's very important to get away from accounts 
that see this as principally an American phenomenon. It is true that almost everything horrible that has developed in the last 30 or 40 years <laughs> begins in America. That is undoubtedly the case. But the speed, the actual speed with which these things are imported into other Western societies is truly fantastic. It's almost like you, know, you hear about what's happening in Los Angeles you know, two months ago, and next morning you wake up and you begin to realize that it's already making its presence known within your society. So we're talking about global phenomenon that are much more recognizable. You know, for example, the discussion on white supremacy is much more recognizable in America. But you know that uh, already in Britain and other European societies, discussions about how white supremacy uh, is dominating our, our world is cropping up and becoming increasingly used in everyday kind of conversations. One of the reasons why the culture war is difficult to grasp is that it's dif different than any other culture wars in the past, or at least conflicts over culture. If you go back in history, you'll find that, for example, there was a, a culture war between the Jews and the Greeks. The Jews really didn't like you know, the influence that Greek philosophy exercised on young people, particularly in places like Alexandria. You had a conflict of culture between the Romans and the Greeks. Cicero didn't really want uh, the, the Romans to, to kind of owe their debts to Greek philosophy either. You had culture wars during the Reformation. You had culture wars, as, as Angus was saying earlier on, in, in Germany in the 19th century. All these culture wars are different than now in that they, they weren't principally cultural. You know, the culture was not the main driving force. They were really sublimated expressions of other kinds of conflict. So in the case of, uh, of, of, of the Reformation, there was one doctrine, Protestantism, against another doctrine, Catholicism. It was very, very clear you know, what the ideas were really all about. If you looked at the cultural conflicts in France in the 19th century, it was the Catholic Church versus Republican secular thinking about what kind of education would dominate schools in those societies. Same thing in the Kulturkampf in Germany. It was very, very clear what these were about. But all these conflicts were often about secular political interests. So in the case of Germany, it was about German unification. In the case of France, it was about what does it mean to be French. In the case of the Reformation, it was the princes versus the universal uh, church or the, the kings, that emperors that tried to uh, kind of personify this universal church. All very different than now, because now we haven't got these kind of doctrinal disputes. Just to give, make a long story short, if there is one thing that comes out of this lecture that maybe you want to remember, I think one of the principal features of culture war, which uh, comes up in every single debate and every single discussion, is this impulse, this psychological, social, political impulse to detach ourselves as human beings from our past. It's continually an attempt to pathologize everything that human beings done in the past. That's a no-go area. And distance ourselves as much as possible. And I'll try to explain what that means and how that works in relation to a number, a number of different kind of debates. Our culture war begins in an embryonic form after First World War. I think the First World War is the beginning of a long protracted process 
that we're seeing now. It was in the First World War that something very important happened. It was a war that nobody actually won. Um, perhaps America did for a short, short period of time. But the consequence of that war was that uh, the Western societies and the elites of the West begin to have doubts about who they were, begin to lose confidence in the values into which they were socialized, were no longer able to uh, tell their children and their grandchildren with conviction that this is what we're about. And you'll find that decade after decade after decade, education changes. It becomes increasingly a reaction to what has gone on beforehand. You find that child rearing changes in a very fundamental way. Children are brought up into values that are almost the polar opposite to what has gone on beforehand. You find that uh, suddenly everything looks really bad about the past, that the, the past becomes a dark place. And certainly, after the Second World War, when you have this horrible experience, it's a lot of people draw the conclusion that what happened in the Second World War, Nazism and the concentration camp, weren't just simply horrible developments, but they were the inevitable consequence of Western culture, that somehow you know, the Reformation and the Enlightenment and science and rationality inevitably lead to Auschwitz. That's the kind of simplistic way in which many of these ideals were kind of posed. And I think that kind of loss of confidence in Western values is really quite important. And it's actually quite shocking that most people who discuss this thing haven't really picked up, picked up on this. And in, in many respects, I think what happens is that just as the Western elites initially find it very difficult to acknowledge that they no longer believe in what they're about, so to the reaction to it hasn't really got very much of a name, hasn't got a real clarity to it. There's a very interesting exchange that takes place in 1970, which really sums up to me like a critical point. In 1970, you have a discussion between Daniel Monaghan and Richard Nixon. He's the president at that point. You all know Nixon, seen the film. And, uh, Monaghan was one of the most uh, uh, intelligent, conservative-minded. He was actually a Democrat to begin with, but was drawn towards conservatism, uh, intellectual and policymaker of the time. And Daniel uh, Monaghan writes a memorandum to Nixon, and this is what he says. No doubt there's a struggle going on in this country of the kind the Germans used to call a Kulturkampf. The adversary culture, which dominates all channels of information, transfer and opinion formation, has never been stronger. And as best as I can tell, it has come near silencing the representatives of traditional America. So what he's really saying is that there is a, what he calls adversarial culture. That's the way they named it, this thing that has got no name used to be called either the counterculture by its uh, uh, supporters and adversarial culture by its opponents. So there's this adversarial culture that has become so influential 
that it dominates all institutions of communication, in other words, it dominates the media and cultural production. And the most important point that he makes, which really wasn't picked up on all that well, is that he has come near silencing the representatives of traditional America, silencing. And I think that one of the things that we need to take away from this memorandum is that this capacity to silence your opponents has become stronger and stronger and stronger. In other words, one of the things that we find in the cultural conflict is that that side has become remarkably successful in silencing those people who feel uneasy with what's really going on. That's why these Muslim parents that uh, Angus talked about break the norm, you know, because they haven't been educated into proper Western values, right? They, they still believe that, you know, if they get worried about what their children are learning, they have a right to shout and yell, even if they risk being denounced as homo homophobes, right? They are not like us, you know, or you know, normal people who are too embarrassed, actually too embarrassed to say what we think, right? They, they're, they're different. And I think this silencing element is something you see most strikingly in, in universities, but you see that everywhere, where there are certain things, you, certain words you cannot say, certain expressions you cannot use, and you cannot really confidently voice your intuition and your instinct. That's not something that is really available to you. And that's something that in this discussion and in the next couple of days we should think about, how we give people back their voice. Because right? it's not just simply people sitting in this room who might have reservations about what's going on. There's a lot of other people there who lack a voice at the moment in terms of being able to have the confidence. And I think the reason why they haven't got the confidence is because for generations and generations and generations, their elites and their cultural institutions have really lost the confidence, the ability to stand up for anything that remotely links them to where they come from. They just, there isn't really any of that going on. Conceptually, there are two phases to the current culture war, the one that we're going through. The first is from 1914 and 1970, but particularly the 1950s and the 1960s. In this period, in, in the 1950s, 60s, what we see is the loss of belief of the bourgeoisie, which opens the door to what will be known as the counterculture, who then gain a spectacular amount of ascendancy in the United States. So what that tells us is that this cultural conflict is something that is internal to Western capitalism. It doesn't come from the outside. It's not an importation from Asia or from Mars. It's something that is internal to the way that Western capitalism develops. And I think in the first instance, it is an expression of capitalism's inability to generate moral authority and to be able to legitimate itself. In the second instance, this problem is a, is a product of a, a vain attempt to bypass this problem by distancing society from the past and the moral outlook that provided capitalism with sustenance in the centuries beforehand. When I look back upon its history, just to be very brief because we haven't got time, this loss of confidence and this attempt to detach yourself from the past finds its first most striking expression in what's called American progressivism, 
which uh, is a kind of technocratic social engineering ambition that takes off in the United States in the late 19th, early 20th century, and then is later in the 60s reinforced by counter-cultural uh, anti-enlightenment impulses, which uh, combine the disposition towards particularism, cultural particularism, and emotionalism, which is why I would say uh, that the cultural, what, what's called the cultural turn, something I'm talking about tomorrow, is actually as much a, a cultural as a psychological turn. I think you'll find that the uh, emotionalist aspects becomes very, very important. And what's important about this reaction to capitalist uh, ideals is it's very different than previous anti-materialist re rebellions. It's not like the Bohemians or the Romantics who are against material, materialism or against consumerism. This is really a questioning of the moral underpinnings of society. So that's, in a sense, is quite important. Now, until the 1960s, 1970s, most commentators didn't really pick up on this. And the reason for that is because they were entirely obsessed by the political and ideological conflicts that were going on in the Cold War. In the eyes of most people, the conflict since the First World War was communism versus capitalism, Russia versus America. And obviously, that was the big international sort of uh, conflict that people were focused on. But what was really not noticed is that behind the scenes, while these big ideological Cold War conflicts were being fought out, something else was going on under the surface. And I think it's interesting that when the, cult the new culture war begins to emerge in the 1960s, it is associated in the eyes of conservatives with the new left. You know, this is a left-wing thing that's happening. It's a left-wing that's using uh, underhanded methods to undermine our way of life. As it happens, even today, people use this idiotic expression of cultural Marxism. That's the cultural Marxists in the universities are doing this, not realizing there is no such thing as cultural Marxists. And cultural Marxist period are conspicuous by their absence in universities. So that wasn't really seen. And what they didn't really understand was that this new cultural movement that was emerging was as much against the left, the old left, as it was against the right. It was against any form of ideology or outlook that was either directly or indirectly linked to the Enlightenment or to the Reformation or to Christianity. Any of those things you know, were seen as being uh, the, almost like the, the, the cultural contrast to what was emerging. So basically what we have at this moment is a kind of movement that is corroding away at the cultural conf confidence of Western society, but it's doing it in a way that it's not aware of its intention or its dynamic. Uh, and in a sense, what's interesting about this period is that the, the, the rebellion of the 60s is not really a rebellion, because what they're doing is they're kicking against an open door. There really isn't very much that's actually op uh, kind of opposing them at that time. The second phase of the culture war begins in the 1970s, and it goes on till today. And in the 1970s, what we see is, number one, the institutionalization of the counterculture, first in education, particularly in higher education, then in the public sector, and finally in the private sector. I think you have to realize that uh, people talk about the university, what's going on, but you go work for Google, or you work for any private company, and it's really no different. I mean, the same kind of 
you talk to any human resources person in Google, they're just as horrible as an administrator at a university. They got pretty much the same kind of values, kind of overall. And in this period, what we're seeing is the first attempt to kind of constitute, to create, to elaborate a kind of set of counter values. It's really in the 70s that you have the beginnings of that. Um, and where gradually, bit by bit, they're gaining hegemony over, our, 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 over society. I think in the 70s, you also see unnoticed the disappearance of Western values. It's in the 1970s that the term Western civilization mutates from something you're proud of to something you're embarrassed about. I mean, it's a very swift process that occurs at that particular stage in time. And until the 1960s, 70s, we, what you saw was the conflict between old-fashioned conservatism and, and this new movement. Uh, but what you have, in a sense, from that period onward is a much more broadening out of attacks on, on kind of, uh, in a sense, a kind of foundational forms. In a sense, what we saw uh, at this particular moment is a corrosion of Western civilization by forces that are internal to it. And I think that's very important to understand, that the conflict is something that is internal, is imminent, that's kind of, uh, uh, kind of contained within it. And what you're seeing is a, a moral collapse occurring, which leads to, uh, and, and, and this I think today is most clearly seen in the debate on white supremacy, because I think what's interesting about the debate on white supremacy is that it's not simply about reversing the racial hierarchy. I mean, if you look at America, the discussion on white supremacy tries to almost say, well, the white are the bad and black people are the good. It's a complete kind of reversal of racial hierarchy. But it's also an attempt, and this is what's original about it at this stage, an attempt to create a new racial discourse where you basically create a new kind of racialization project that racializes everything. And in the course of, of doing that, what you do is you reverse the moral values. So you know, what is the personification of evil in the 21st century if you're an American university professor or an American guy working in Google, the personification of evil is not just white, but male, white male, and not just white male, but preferably a dead one, right? <laughs> so the dead white male is actually an interesting uh, personification project because it, by the dead is really important. I never used to understand why they go with, why not just white male? You know, why do they have to be dead white male? You know, and the reason why they have to be dead is because our cultural heroes on that side spend so much of their time lecturing our ancestors, kind of uh, criticizing people that can no longer answer back, uh, detaching society from the past, that the dead white male becomes this almost spontaneously you know, kind of developed kind of uh, way in which evil can be personified and horrified. What is the precondition for the culture war? Well, I said, first of all, it's a loss of moral authority. Uh, it's what uh, I suppose you can talk about is the depletion of moral capital, of capitalism. There's a very interesting article that Irving Kristol, who then became a neoconservative, wrote, where he basically makes a very simple point. He says, the moral depletion of capitalism leads to a legitimacy crisis. And he says this. And he's very much sad about it because obviously he's totally identifying with the capitalist system. He says, 
For well over 150 years now, social critics have been warning us that bourgeois society was living off the accumulated moral capital of traditional religion and traditional moral philosophy. And that once this capital was depleted, bourgeois society would find its legitimacy even more questionable. So the depletion of moral capital, uh, I think, was absolutely crucial for the counterculture to become so clearly hege hegemonic. And it's interesting that this development, as you would expect, first crystallizes in literary culture and academia. There's a wonderful book, which uh, I, I, people should read if they're interested in literature. It's by Lionel Trilling, who's an extremely uh, sensitive individual. He really picks up on cultural uh, trends much, much better than anybody else in the 40s and the 1950s. And in 1965, he wrote a preface uh, to a book called Beyond Culture. And this is what he says. Any historian of the modern age will take virtually for granted the adversary intention, the actual subversive intention that characterizes modern writing. He will perceive its clear purpose of detaching the reader from the habit of thought and feeling that the larger culture imposes, of giving him a grand and a vantage point from which to judge and condemn and perhaps revise the culture that has produced him. And I think that's true if you know anything about literature. Uh, it's great, I mean, I mean, there's no reason why literature shouldn't be like that, but if you look at literature in the 30s and the 40s and the 50s, it's all about you know, detaching the reader from the habits and thoughts and feeling of the larger culture. And he really kind of picks up on that, you know, this kind of intellectual literary pro, uh, kind of process. And of course, while he's writing, from a slightly different point of view, Jean-Paul Sartre says the same thing. Sartre uh, wrote in 1949 that the writer gives society a guilty conscience. He is thereby in a state of perpetual antagonism towards the conservative forces which are maintaining the balance he tends to upset. Now, there's nothing wrong with writers trying to give society a guilty conscience. You know, that could can be an honorable occupation because sometimes society should have a guilty conscience about certain things. None of this would have been a problem except for the fact that when Sartre was writing and when uh, others were writing these books that were questioning everything to do with the cultural norms of society, the people that should have been defending those cultural norms were looking at their shoelaces. Right? They were embarrassed about it. They weren't fighting back. And I think that what you can see is that what begins, in a sense, gains momentum. In the 1970s, what you have is a situation where the establishment in America, particularly, it begins there, becomes cynical about its own role. It makes fun of itself. It's in the 1970s that in America, and then later on in Britain, it takes a bit longer, the political class disintegrates and they turn into politicians. There's a big difference between a political class with a noblesse oblige, with a, court, you know, with a l'esprit de corps, and a bunch of politicians who are out for themselves, but nothing is binding them together. They've got no organic relationship to their own society, their own culture, or, or, or to their own past. And I think what you've got there is a 
political class was still half-heartedly trying to defend something, but all they could do in the 70s and the 80s and the 90s was let rip at the intellectuals or the intellectuals or the academics. This is the problem. In other words, they were letting rip at the messengers rather than actually what was you know, going on as, as, a, as a bit of a problem. It's a very, uh, the defensiveness is really well captured by uh, Seymour Lipset, a political scientist in America, who actually in 72, faced with attacks on their legitimacy from intellectuals and students, many in the governing elite exhibit a failure of nerve. The basic tensions of the contradictions within the system come from within the elite itself, from its own intellectual leaders, supported by large segments of its student children. I think that is obviously the case, that kind of crisis of nerve. When I was struggling to understand the culture war, I tried to find a moment where it first crystallizes, where you can really see uh, in embryo what's going to happen today. And I think the most interesting moment, something that people interpret very differently, was the McCarthy episode. Now, McCarthy, the Cold War warrior, the anti-communist, you know, sort of, there's loads of films made about McCarthy about how he managed to banish people and what a powerful individual he was and how he managed to virtually close down Hollywood. And he's like the prototype of the fascist right wing, you know, I'm, I'm almost like Trump before Trump. But what people forget about McCarthy is that he never gained intellectual or cultural hegemony. McCarthy was able to scare a lot of people. He was able to fire a lot of producers and actors in Hollywood. But actually, the universities, academia, education, remained completely immune from McCarthy's influence. And as Gene Kirkpatrick wrote in the 1970s, and Gene Kirkpatrick is as considered as you get, she wrote, McCarthy was never able to gain the symbolic authority that he tried to wrest from the people that were on the other side. And what McCarthy tried to do, in a sense, was to force people in the United States to conform to his version of American values. And what he discovered was that rather than conforming to the values that he wanted, people just rebelled against it. So the McCarthy period, which is often seen as a triumph of the far right, actually revealed at a very, very early point that you cannot, through administrative and policing means, win the culture wars. These are far out in the realm of ideas, principally. And unless you're able to gain some kind of symbolic significance over the production of ideas, uh, you're not going to get uh, very far. That was in the 1950s. The permissive 60s that we talked about looked positively sober and positively conservative to the period that we're living in now. If you take your mind back, 60s, you know, a lot of hippies and smoking dope and everything else, but that was, compared to the challenge to the basic fundamental values of, of our world, was far more restrained than the kind of stuff we're hearing in the 21st century. I think it's worth thinking about that because we often lose sight of that. You know, so what are the issues at stake here in this culture war? I'm not going to dis <coughs> discuss the obvious ones because you all know them, you know, the family, marriage, sex, all these, abortion, all that stuff. They're old hat. You know, sort of, we're kind of quite familiar with them. 
I think it's much more important to understand the uh, issues at stake. So as, first of all, focused around the, these lectures that are constantly delivered against our ancestors. That's, I think, is the most revealing statement. The continuous attempt to rewrite the past, because it's in the rewriting the past that people actually write down what is the world they want to do. They're much braver in fighting against roads or in getting university college to fight against the eugenics people of 100 years ago than, than actually making a clear statement about where they are today. I think what they're really about is a distancing. It's, it's, it's a principally seen as a distancing process, where it's distancing people from their communities, from their families, from their past, and all those things. It's a, it's a, a negative process of detaching people uh, from their traditions from a particular way of life. I think it's this negativity that prevents it uh, until now of developing a more positive version of an alternative cultural kind of system. I've come to the conclusion that the most important battleground in this cultural conflict, something that only rears its head now and again, is sovereignty. And not just national sovereignty, but the sovereignty of the individual. I think almost all the, all the hatred and all the attacks are very much directed against individual sovereignty. If you look at the hostility in America uh, that's directed against the idea of autonomy, autonomy is a myth, individual autonomy is nonsensical, you know, sort of, uh, it's particularly nonsensical for minorities and for people who have suffered from various kinds of oppressions. You'll find that uh, almost bit by bit, the conflict, the cultural conflict and, and, and the attacks move from the political to the pre-political sphere. It's all about the way we lead our lives. It's, it's what you do, you know, it's your lifestyle. It's, 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 it's what you do with other people. It's how you behave with other people. It's how you communicate with other people. I mean, concepts like microaggression, all these things, are very much about, you know, in a sense, occupying or colonizing the private sphere. I think that's a lot of the battleground uh, is a self-conscious attempt to, to destroy the boundary between the private and the public. I mean, that's really where most of the big battles are, are being uh, sort of um, fought out. So I would say that at the moment, the uh, other side, and I, I'm using the other side because I cannot give it a name, but hopefully by the end of uh, this weekend, we can give it a name. You know, I got a few ideas, but I'm not going to mention it just yet. Uh, the other side has not yet crystallized into an alternative, but it is sufficiently powerful to neutralize previous standards and conventions. I mean, I'm, I'm just astounded by that. That virtually nothing you can, there's nothing you can any longer take for granted. When you, when you get to the point where you go to a toilet, right, and you're kind of you know, hanging out of the urinal and you find all these weird people sharing your private space in a toilet, you know something new has happened. <laughs> and not only that, but they think they got a high moral, oh, look at that guy. You know, he's just a man, you know, sort of, <laughs> whereas I'm much more than that. So when you've when you got, kind of, you got that kind of cultural shift occurring in a very short period of time, you'll know that there's no convention. There's no previous convention you can take for granted. There's a paradox in the culture war, which is that the constant expression of culture actually depletes it of any meaning. You know, in the English language now, we have this habit of talking about 
institutional culture, you know, sort of group culture. We talk about uh, uh, kind of corporate culture. I mean, everything is, is kind of a, a culture to the point at which we use culture so much that it's association with cultivation, with, with what, uh, what culture used to mean originally is, is, is pretty much sort of uh, lost title. And that wouldn't be a problem except for the fact that the more you, in a sense, empty culture of, of its meaning, what you're then doing is you're creating the conditions where culture, which is something that is organically created, has got some organic basis to the past, that kind of culture is displaced by the creation of values which are done technically and administratively. So all the new values in our society are not based upon human experience over centuries. They are artificially created and they come out of nowhere. All of a sudden you have diversity as being a principal value. All of a sudden you have difference as being very highly valued. All of a sudden you have safety as being incredibly valuable. One morning you wake up and you discover that one of the most important values in our globe is sustainability. I mean, where did that come from? You know, today we use sustainability almost without thinking. They say, oh yeah, it's, it's a really important value. But where does that come from? And all these things are essentially technical and, organic, uh, and, and uh, administratively created uh, kind of values. So these are values I think that are uh, in a sense, quite powerful, albeit of temporary influence. But the good news is, is that none of these values can speak for themselves. The good news is, is that none of the values, you know, when you actually ask people to explain what diversity is, they end up by saying that they don't like homogeneity. Yeah. They don't like people who are homogeneous, we like diversity. It's kind of, you know, a, a kind of very childish kind of concept, like difference. Well, why do you value difference? What's the good thing about difference? And when you demand that this should be explained to you, they're not very good at providing a, a, a proper account. And, and all the values that have been created, basically what the good news is, is they both lack meaning, but more importantly, they all lack moral depth. Right? All of these uh, kind of uh, artificially created values that are in the value statements of different organizations, they all, without exception, lack moral depth. They haven't got the capacity to, to move the spirit, the human spirit, in the way that the, uh, the, kind of the norms that have emerged over the centuries uh, have been kind of created. So where does that leave us? Uh, I mean, I don't want to anticipate the discussion later on, uh, because uh, we'll look at particularly the present moment uh, tomorrow. But it seems to me that where that leaves us is that we need to, in a sense, counter this by elaborating in a very aggressive kind of way, in an in-your-face kind of a way, a humanist alternative, one that values and assigns a central role to judgment, which Angus mentioned. I think judgment is key here. Judgment, uh, as we'll also discuss tomorrow, is the key way in which you can reintroduce uh, a moral sensibility that can, uh, that can match, more than match, what it is that one is fighting, that can reintroduce the idea of individual sovereignty and autonomy, which I think is absolutely crucial. I think sadly, at the moment, 
individual autonomy is being fought by, by the, the two dominant sides in the culture war, because both the conservative side and the anti-conservative side don't like individual autonomy. They think that somehow that negates the idea of community. They don't realize that unless you have individuals who are autonomous, able to exercise their autonomy and take responsibility for their action, unless you have that, you know, we're going to have a lot of problems. And I think we have to also take seriously the values of responsibility and duty. I think it's really important that, that we uh, basically reintroduce the concept that we have to take responsibility uh, for our action and, and, and that that has got a very real meaning from the way we raise children all the way through uh, our lives. And duty, which is seen as being like an old-fashioned crazy kind of a word, is really quite important because unless we have duties to one another and duties to society, it's not really possible to create a, a kind of a, a framework or meaning through which these kinds of concepts can be fought. I think finally the, the key point, and this is something that I'm struggling with, is we have to always remember time and time again that they are very, very effective at silencing us. And when I think of myself and the amount of energy I spent over the years in trying to tactically get around to avoid being called this or being called that, I've come to the conclusion of saying, well, you know, we now reached a, a critical moment. And, you know, if I see something that I think is morally reprehensible, if I think that I see something that is fundamentally flawed, regardless of provoking a reaction and being called a homophobe or a dysphobe or whatever, I think you just got to say it. And I think we have to go on the offensive and basically get them to go on the defensive and understand that they're being childish in the way that you just hurl words, words at us. I think getting that voice back uh, is going to be a difficult challenge because even people, even sensible, intelligent people have almost learned the art of self-censorship over, over, over the years. And when you've been socialized into the art of self-censorship, it's really very difficult to go out in public, not in this room, because in this room we can be very brave talking to each other, but to go out there is a little bit more difficult. I think that seems to me the, the key challenge. And I'm absolutely convinced that if you dare say what the score is and you dare challenge these views, you'll find that it will resonate with a lot more people than you imagine. I think that's one of the nice things that's come out of politics in Britain, certainly in, in the UK in the last couple of years, that there are a lot more people there who want their voices to be represented and they want uh, a system of meaning through which they can somehow discover their braveness, their capacity to be citizens in our society. So yes, let's go and fight. <laughs> You've been listening to Professor Frank Faraday give the second lecture in this series, Culture Wars, Then and Now. We'll return next week when it'll be the turn of Professor James Tooley, who'll be looking at the role of the state in the education culture wars. So don't forget to subscribe to this Ideas Matters podcast on your favourite feed. And if you can, we'd be grateful if you could leave a review, which will help us get the word out about this series. For anyone who wishes to explore any of the lecture topics in more depth, 
then do check out the additional readings that are listed in the accompanying notes to the podcast. Or you can visit the Academy at our website www.theboi.co.uk. I'm Alistair Donald, Secretary of the Battle of Ideas charity which organises the Academy, as well as Debating Matters Schools Debating Championships and Living Freedom, the annual residential school for under-25s. If you would like to support this podcast, or any of the educational and citizenship initiatives, then please consider making a donation to the charity. More details of our work and how to support us are available at the website www.theboi.co.uk. Finally, thanks to Will Nesta Sherman who edited this podcast series. Thank you.